myself. Lord help. All right. Well, welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with all the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, video editors. Speaking of video editors, congratulations, Nina Erb picked up an Emmy Award uh, last uh, two nights ago. Um, yay, Nina. Um, our regular listeners will remember Nina was on the show several weeks ago during Emmy voting. Uh, so congratulations to Nina. Congratulations to all the Emmy winners last night. Some really great surprises. Um, uh, my favorite was seeing Schitt's Creek just clean up all the comedy awards. That was fabulous. And, and those of you that follow me on social media know, um, as I expressed on social media, hey, this is great because 2020 is such a eh, year. Now we can say it's a shit sweep. Um, and we're talking about the TV show, or maybe not. Um, but Emmys are, are finished for another year. Now we have to worry about next year. I'm starting my Yellowstone campaign for next year. Um, but Behind the Lens has a great show for you today. I'm very, we did some last minute juggling over the weekend and big thanks to our first guest today um, for making today happen. Otherwise you'd be listening to a pre-recorded interview for the first part of the show. But joining us is the fabulous Janice Rouse uh, and she has been burning up the festival circuit with the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles. It's a parody web series of shorts. I have loved this since she debuted it on social media. Uh, I'm so thrilled that Janess is back with us. This is her third time on the show. And were it not for COVID, I'm sure that she would be in studio in full Shannon O'Brien regalia. But, and then following uh, uh, Janess, we're going from the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles to the Salton Sea on the show today. Uh, for the last part of the show, we're going to welcome filmmaker Greg Bazinian, talk about his documentary, a very important documentary, especially for the people here in California, Miracle in the Desert, The Rise and Fall of the Salton Sea. So interesting, educational, entertaining, informative. I can't wait to talk to Greg. Um, and I'm going to bring... Janess on in just a second here, but for those of you who are watching on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream, you're going to see some new accoutrement on the tablescape today. Um, something that I am just so madly in love with, Tiny Chef Show. Uh, I now have a Tiny Chef plushie and Tiny Chef's first book is out. Um, if you haven't seen Tiny Chef, uh, it is one of the cutest things in the world, produced by Imagine and those brain children behind Imagine, Ron Howard and Brian Grazier. Kristen Bell is also involved in uh, the Tiny Chef show, but it is so cute. Uh, I just love it, and I'm, I was so excited the other day when my, my chefy arrived, and the next day my book, his, uh, his res missing recipe book, arrived. So very happy. And then a big thank you to Angela Cartwright, one of the Sound of Music 7, um, just sent me the latest, the 55th anniversary book of all the memorabilia of the Sound of Music kids. Um, it is fabulous. It, it came all wrapped up in brown paper and string. And it has pictures, photos, uh, memorabilia from each of the Sound of Music 7 kids. Um, it's wonderful. I haven't even made my way all the way through the book as yet, but I know that Big Boss Nick's editor, Serena, might, i got to make sure she doesn't steal it because she is obsessed with Sound of Music. But 
Let's get on with today's show and let's introduce one of my most favorite people in the world. Janice Rouse is in the hey! house. <laughs> Hello, you. Hello. Oh, it's been so long. I know. I know. Pam and I. Pam and I were both cracking up. The phone was ringing, folks, seven minutes before the show. The phone, the, the call-in line is ringing, and we're going, it's Janice, it's Janice. And, uh, you know, we couldn't get to the line before it went to the voicemail, so I'm messaging her. We knew it was you. We knew it was you. Um, yeah. I love a prompt guest. But, and I know. Yes. And I know. Were it not for the pandemic, you would be here in studio again, undoubtedly in Shannon O'Brien regalia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. You got to get that, the gum out and the bright pink lipstick. And the blush. Which is how it all started. <laughs> you know, for those and, and everybody that follows me on social media, be it on Instagram, be it on Facebook, uh, be it on Twitter, and you can find me everywhere as Movie Shark D, just the initial D, or BTL Radio Show, or Debbie Lynn Elias. I'm there, or I think I'm DeBlore on Instagram. I'm not sure, uh, mm-hmm. but I have loved this creation of Janessa's <laughs> since she first debuted it. It is whenever I need a laugh, I just. I go to, will you stop laughing? You're going to make me laugh here. Um, I just go to the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles Facebook page and, or YouTube if I'm bouncing in YouTube. And I just watch Shannon with some of her most famous, most famous uh, parodies and skits. Her co-video face mask, Sync de Mayo, TikTokin. Beers and masks. Um, there is no end to Janessa's creativity. Um, when she's been on the show before, it, we were somber. We were serious. She, Her monarch rising. Uh, she was doing performance pieces. Um, very dignified. Very musical, <laughs> classical, ah. respected. Yeah, well, folks, you want to know Janessa R- Rouse's range? <gasps> Just watch Shannon O'Brien Chronicles. It says white as a rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) You go from one end of the spectrum. You're off the rainbow, Janess. You're off the rainbow. Um, Well, there are leprechauns at the end of the rainbow. (laughs) I I think think Shannon has gone past the leprechauns and past the pot of gold. (laughs) Um, yeah, they only wore green. They need to wear rainbow colors. <laughs> uh, you know, where did the idea for this insanely delightful character of Shannon come from? Uh, well, it came from a little stick of lipstick. <laughs> I was, okay, so I had been sojourning in Texas for a while. I had come back to L.A., ready to pour into my, uh, you know, career again, new headshots, new everything. And within like a month of being back, I get the flu. And I hadn't had the flu in like 10 years. So I was, I felt awful. I was in my apartment looking around to try to distract myself (laughs) from how bad I felt. And someone had given me this neon pink lipstick because they weren't going to wear it. So clearly I was, which I don't know why they thought that. (laughs) But I was looking at it and then I had this idea of a type of persona from my childhood hometown Odessa, Texas. I'm from Midland, Odessa, Texas, which is West Texas. And Odessa, especially in the 80s, was really known for, well, not just the 80s. They got stuck in the 80s for about 20 years, (laughs) but in a delightful, amazing way, where big hair, big lipstick, you know, a lot of accessories, and that big, bright Texas accent. 
Oh and I had this idea. There's especially there's this one receptionist in one of our doctor's offices that I absolutely adore that kind of I mean, not near as exaggerated as Shannon, but has that well, hey y'all, how you doing? You know? So me and my fever brain running a hundred and two fever, I put on the lipstick. <laughs> I grab a piece of gum because you need to chew gum so your mouth keeps moving so you can talk a lot. Mm-hmm. And I put on whatever makeup I had. You know, I didn't have a lot because I have real pretty muted colors at the time, but I found whatever I could. And I just created this idea of this girl auditioning for the talk show host. Because she can talk a lot. So she would be a great talk show host because all she does is talk, talk, talk all the time. (laughs) So that's kind of how it started. But then um, as it developed, as I was getting through the flu, I started to get a little bit more animated because I felt better. (laughs) (laughs) So and then I had a little money saved up. So I started to buy little pieces of real colorful makeup and the big transition was when my mother oh lord went to uh is it the candy store at the grove it's that it's that rainbow like delicacies it's right at the entrance of the grove and the farmer's market love that little store all candy but she had bought this headband with a rhinestone unicorn, you know, on the horn mm-hmm. and little cat ears. And it's what you see in all the promo photos for Shannon. Yep. It's like that became her staple. And I had this new pink, you know, jacket. And I came up with her helping her niece with a vocabulary test. <laughs> and coming up with how to, you know, this is what all these words mean. Like, roll back, you get on the ground, and you roll back. <laughs> That's what that means. And that was kind of the transition for Shannon, to go from that kind of muted, figuring it out, didn't feel good, but it was a really funny idea, to who she is today with the Think de Mayo and everything is taken very literally. And you have to wear every color of the rainbow because Rainbow Bright is her hero. And you got to bring color to the world. <laughs> and even in a pandemic, but during a pandemic, Shannon has a very special mask. Yes. Yes, she does. So I had done one episode every week mm-hmm. all last year from March until like June and I burned out. I ran out of ideas. Things were starting to pick up in my regular career. <laughs> so I laid it down. I, I never like hung it up like I'm going to, you know, quit. It's just I, I needed a break, really needed a break. And fast forward to the pandemic starts to happen, and around that time, my dad had even made a comment, well, I guess Shannon's done. And I said, well, maybe, (laughs) I don't know. And then in April, I had a phone call from one of my industry friends who asked me, where's your character? This is the perfect time to do your character and I told him I ran out of energy to do it and he strongly recommended uh reviving her and consider TikTok which I had never heard of at the time and I started sitting there going because this is back when all the face mask things just were coming out the right face mask the bad face mask what works what does it and I thought how would Shannon handle the face mask issue? And then it hit me. She's from Texas. So face mask means a football helmet. And she would get the best face mask out there, and she would do her research, 
And it was so funny how it happened because the only face mask that I could actually get really quickly or football helmet I could get very quickly was happened to be a Kansas City Chief football helmet. I didn't put two and two together until I opened the delivery box. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, these are the Super Bowl champions. <laughs> so it went from she's going to have a face mask, a football helmet, to she got the best face mask in the world right now. Mm-hmm. Which is they're the Super Bowl champions. <laughs> So I am protected. (laughs) You know, I have to tell people, when you watch these videos of Shannon O'Brien, the amount of energy that Janess expends in bringing Shannon to life, it uh, the best thing that I can equate your performance to, Janess, is Robin Williams doing Mork and going through 50 different voices uh, within five, ten minutes' time. Um, Seriously, folks, she is Janessa's Shannon. Her performance is Shannon. I can only, I have to equate it. I can only equate it to Robin Williams. Um, Yeah, it's kind of fun. I mean, someone made a comment about that, how... My voice keeps changing. She's mm-hmm. got a real high up here, and then she gets real low. <laughs> well, it's when she's making, you know, she's making certain points. Shannon, yes. knows, she knows how to use diction and cadence and, and vocal tone quite well. I don't ever want to see her explain all of that. Of course, that could be rather interesting. Um, that would be interesting. But what uh, what you have done, you took it a step further. And as you're mm-hmm. making all these wonderful pieces of entertainment for all of us on lockdown around the world, you start entering film festivals. Um, yeah. I mean, and this this is where the industry has really stepped up over the past 10 years, especially the past seven years, um, by embracing web series, web shorts, and making that mm-hmm. those part of festival competitions. Because I'm talking yeah. here, this woman is all over the world <laughs> with the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles, the Kalakari Festival. <laughs> she won the best web series. That's in India. She's got in the prestigious International Fest, the KIMFF Fest yeah. in Slovakia, um, Hollywood Blood Horror Fest, um, the Actor Awards, where she's won Best Actress for a Comedy, Best Actress in a TV Web Series, New York Film Awards, Best Trailer, Best Parody, Best Microfilm, an award from the Laugh Association, LA Film Awards, Top Shorts 2. Kalakari was best web series. My God, who would have yeah. thought a, a tube of pink yeah. lipstick? And folks, if you're if you're watching on the adrenalineradio.com Facebook feed right now, this is my pink. This is my official neon pink paper that I have used um, in in law, in entertainment. Um, it's like my calling card. I used to send other attorneys to court with instructions written on this paper and the clerks in the courts used to know who sent them because of the pink paper. Every Q&A I moderate, I have my pink paper. This is the color pink that Shannon uses. (laughs) It is bright as can be. You can see it in the back of an auditorium. Uh, Yeah. But I can't believe, and you have more festivals that are coming up. Yeah, this yeah. is this is just it was a interesting because it was like so. This was back in June, and I hadn't really finessed any of the episodes with any kind of credits or anything. I just found this little competition, and I decided, oh, I'll just throw my name in the hat. I don't even know if it qualifies. You know, if this would even work because it's. Literally shot on Zoom Mm -hmm. on my laptop. And some are shot on my phone, but they're starting to shoot more on my phone now. But all last year's all shot on Zoom. 
So in the Beers and Mass one, the parody that's one best parody, that's shot solely using my webcam on Zoom wow. conferencing. So I just didn't know how it would do, if it would even be accepted. Well, it wins this little bitty, yay, award of recognition that they give to the bottom of the totem pole. <laughs> winners and I went okay well she qualifies but this is like you know kind of a rough edit this isn't this is just what you put on Instagram and just submit what if I added title cards what if I added uh credit so it's kind of more finished feel and you know the music and just smooth it out a little bit and once I did that, suddenly it started to become a finalist. Suddenly it started to win honorable mention in some of them. Now, for a lot of people, they think of honorable mention as like fourth place. In these film competitions, honorable mention is a very close runner-up. Yeah. Meaning whoever won best in category beat you out by only a few votes. Mm-hmm. So she kept getting a lot of those. And then finally, in August, it was the LAFA Association, (laughs) the Los Angeles Film Awards. And it was right before, three days before, I had thought of the weakest submission that I had submitted was the Beers and Masks episode. I thought that was my weakest representation at the time. Three days later, it wins Best Parody in the Los Angeles Film Awards. My first category win I have ever won in all the projects I've submitted, all the, you know, like Beck on Call, which was my kind of real production, budget, cast, you know, whatever. And this one cost me all of, I think, $119 for the helmet. (laughs) Yeah, I, and it wins best parody and gets a trophy. And then three weeks later, I win best web series for kind of a a new smorgasbord of three webisode clips that I had put together. And then the first week of September rolls around, and I had no idea that all these festivals. Like, their notifications would happen in the same week. But it was literally one day after another, three here, two here, three here, all category wins. And I was just floored. So she goes from one trophy that I was so excited about that I filmed an episode about to one week later, now she has (laughs) ten. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and this is funny because the festival, uh, the, the festival circuit is traditionally known for you're on the circuit for a while and you wait mm-hmm. and you wait and you wait. And you know this from Becca on call. Um, yeah. It takes a while before yeah. you even hear anything. But. And yeah. I don't know if it's because things are getting a little more expedited during the pandemic. Um, because all of these new little avenues, I mean, God bless the filmmakers and the creative talents that have been trying to get product out there for people to see. Uh, because as, as you know, I've talked to so many producers and they're like begging in the indie world. They're begging filmmakers. If you have anything that's close to being done, if you have something that just needs a score or a final edit, let's get it done. Let's get it out because the pipeline only has so much and the pipeline and the pipeline is getting dry. Yes. So I'm, I'm thrilled to see all of these festivals and it all snowballing heading into the fall. I mean, this is, this is what you want to see with a traditional awards season with Toronto and Telluride and the Emmys. Yes. But, no, we get all the excitement and fun with Shannon O'Brien and all of these international festivals. (laughs) 
Hey, watching yeah, Shannon. Come on. Doing really well over there. <laughs> you know, watching Shannon O'Brien Chronicles it was a lot more fun than watching the Emmys last night. Let me tell you. Oh man. Even though I have yeah. I have to say Jimmy Kimmel did an incredible job and God bless the engineers who were coordinating 114 or 110 different camera locations. Um, oh man! Yeah, that I kept thinking about my dad, um, and mm-hmm. I could, I could hear his voice in my head if he had had to do something like that uh, <laughs> 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 while he was with ABC. <laughs> wow! Um, wow, I mean, wow! That was it was Herculean, and I and I commend them, but it just didn't have the zip and appeal. And the excitement. Mm-hmm. You want excitement? You just go to social media yeah. and look up the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles, and you're going to get <gasps> all kinds of excitement. Well, it's really a big compliment when a friend calls me up and says she was reading a children's story and it made her think of Shannon. So people are like being inspired in their everyday lives and going, I wonder what Shannon would say. <laughs> well, and that's, you, could, you You really could come up with Shannon merchandise at this point. Yes, you, that would be nice. You really could. I've, I've thought about it. I think thought she, about it, but yeah. I think a Shannon t-shirt we'll would be fabulous. Yes. Shannon t-shirt would be fabulous. But now there's so much that's happening in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. Yet, will we be seeing more original adventures of Shannon O'Brien, such as getting out the vote for for the election? Yeah. Um, With With Shannon giving it... tried something kind of that was more current event-ish. That was a note from last year. Mm-hmm. And it just didn't zing true with her. Now, hers is more, she's a clown. And she's right. kind of your modern-day clown. So she will talk about current events, but not from the standpoint of, like, a lot of stand-up comedians who are, you know, the satire right. type of thing. Because Shannon's more from a child mindset, how a child views the world, mm-hmm. rather than how an adult views the world in a funny way. Mm-hmm. So it's I've, I've went through that whole spectrum of what is Shan- Shannon's commentary more so if it were going to be about voting it would be something to the effect of her experiences right and how she clicked on all the boxes (laughs) (laughs) or something like that because she thought it was a coloring book so it would be something like that rather than you know any kind of uh encouragement well like with the Beers and Mass, for example, mm-hmm. it was just her experiencing the COVID situation. But then at the very end, I come in as the creator just to acknowledge, because especially when that first episode came out, mm-hmm. there was a lot of fear. Yes. And I didn't want, especially since most people, when they see it, they might assume I don't live in one of the quarantine, you know, cities. We've had COVID in our family. I live in a quarantine city, so I I relate, and I am in it with you. I'm not making fun of you kind right. of thing. So, you know, that would be more... Shannon does her thing as, you know, the however she does it. And then if I felt compelled to add a an encouragement at the end that's something that I would do that kind of um imploring or whatever but kind of keep Shannon separate it just after a couple of episodes where I tried to do a current event Mm -hmm. it just did not ring true to her character so she's more like the child that is 
not understanding completely mm-hmm. and to bring a different light to the scenario. Cause you had the, you know, the Jimmy Kimmel's and the, the people that are already doing the satire. Right. So Shannon has her own kind of viewpoint where it's more about crossing lines because children, for example, she really does have like a mindset of a child Mm -hmm. and children kind of cross all lines. And that's what Shannon's really about. She's just there to make everyone laugh no matter what side or what genre you are. (laughs) Well, you know, how difficult is that for you to get into that childlike look at the world and the childlike observations that you bring to Shannon? It's not hard at all. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. I have been, of course, I have a long story. I've had to overcome a lot of hardship for years and years. So there was a season where I was literally under a rock from and separated from the world. So Mm -hmm. there was a part of me that really didn't follow current events because I just wasn't even connected to any of that. So for me, there was already that level of not naivete, but an innocence, just not exposed to some of the stuff. And even though now, like, you know, I'm, I'm in the industry, I'm, I'm working and, you know, everything, I've, I've seen it all, that was so ingrained of that kind of resilient thing over <laughs> whatever everybody else is talking about. I don't get that, but that is great. Thank you. I even did a scene recently where I I know what the intonation is. It's it's dirty humor, mm-hmm. but how the character who's talking, she doesn't have a clue what she's saying, and everybody else is looking at her like she's gross, and she's just talking, and she has no idea that what she's saying is you know gross, and that's kind of that's me. <laughs> I will just start talking and people might look at me like, what is she saying? And I go, what did I say? Did I say something wrong? <laughs> you're, you're like Miss Rhode and, Island in Miss Congeniality. What is yes. the perfect date? Yes. And that yes. is April. <laughs> you know, it's not too hot. It's not too cold. A light jacket or sweater is all you need. All that you need. They're like, okay, okay. (laughs) So, So, and Shannon's just kind of an extension of that. So what is next for Shannon? How many more festivals do we have coming up? Oh, she's got quite a few. So I I held nothing back. (laughs) Any any other exciting places as exciting as Kalakari or Slovakia? Uh, yeah, there's some London ones, um, there's some, and she just was in Sicily, mm-hmm. so Rome, I know, uh, promoted the series, their social media, so she's still on her world tour, uh. so we'll see what happens. <laughs> Oh, you know, I just hope she's getting a lot of, she's going to do something good with all these frequent flyer miles. Yes, yes. I hope so, too. At least all of her trophies are getting the frequent flyer miles. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, unfortunately, my friend, I have to let you go to talk to Greg about the Salton Sea Mm -hmm. um, and and the environmental issues uh, involved with that in his documentary. Uh, yes. A, a big difference from Shannon O'Brien. So now where can everybody see watch Shannon O'Brien and get their day brightened? Okay. It's, if you go on any social media, it's hashtag 
Shannon O'Brien Chronicles. And it's when you spell O'Brien, it's with an A. R I A N, not E N. So, or go on Facebook and it's at the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles. Or you can Google my name, Jeanette Ralph, and Shannon is everywhere. So, trust me, <laughs> Shannon is everywhere. Now, you know, I have some pink, some bright pink lipstick at home. Are you doing okay? Does Shannon have enough? Do I need to donate she to has the cause? <laughs> okay. All right. You know, just, you know. Just so I know. Just in case. Just in case. I don't want Shannon. I will let you know. I, I don't want Shannon to go pinkless. You know, we can't, no, we can't no. have that happen. Well, you yeah. know, you know, I love having you on the show and you have to come back again. Yes. Shannon has to come back and give us an update. Yes, you will. Uh, and you, I love you. And I will talk to you, you soon. You too. And okay. Bye. Bye. And that was the incredibly talented Janess Rouse. And now, now we're going to welcome another sobering and and incredibly talented person uh, to the show, Greg Bassinian. Hello, Greg. Hi, how are you? I am very excited to be talking to you. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. I was spellbound. With your documentary, Miracle in the Desert, The Rise and Fall of the Salton Sea, spellbound by it. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. <laughs> the history that you, that you give us, it's educational, it's entertaining. Um, there's a lot of subtext there. You don't have a lot of talking heads. You know, normally a film like this, especially with the environmental impact of what's happening to the Salton Sea, um, I can see so many people would be bringing in every scientific talking head they could find, which would sure. just obliterate everybody's mind. Their heads would explode. <laughs> um, you very judiciously pick just a few people. You get a personal take from somebody medically affected by the air, you have one scientist with the Pacific Institute. You have the the former mayor. You have a vice mayor there. People that are on the people on the front lines to dealing with the politicians to get uh, the environmental disaster taken care of before it gets any worse than it now is. Um, yeah. What prompted you uh, to tell? This is your first feature documentary. Yeah. Not not exactly the subject you'd come up with over the dinner table, I would I would think. Um, no, no, not exactly. Yeah, you know, where did the idea to tell this story come from? So, in Southern California, I'm from Southern California, so I grew up here. Uh, I live in L.A., and at some point, I had come across a video or an article about the Salton Sea. And I think a lot of people that live out here, that's happened to them, there seems to be like a general awareness about it, but mm -hmm. people just don't quite know what it is. Right. So one, one day back in 2014, I went out there just to see it because I had a day on a Saturday and I went out there with a friend. And when I got there, it's a very striking place. It's, extraordinarily large it's really hard to capture it yeah. on film how big it is and it was just very odd there's the lake is massive you can't see the other side of it and there's nobody there so immediately instinctually i thought why is there nobody here what's that story there has to have been something that caused everybody to effectively leave and then the second question was really, why is it here? Why is there this huge lake in the middle of the desert? Mm -hmm. So those were kind of the things that I felt when I physically got there and saw it. And I kind of just got home and felt inspired um, and picked up the phone and started calling people and seeing who would talk to me. And that was kind of it. Wow. Because, I mean, I've been out here for like, 39 years, 40 years I've been in L.A., and I first mm -hmm. saw the Salton Sea back in the 19, early 1980s, early to mid-1980s. It has changed dramatically since then. 
Yeah. Um, but I didn't know the, the history of it. And I loved hearing the history and how this lake, this sea in the middle of the desert actually came to be. And the trials and tribulations uh, that man went through. Certain men. One who probably could have yeah. done a much better job <laughs> if he put his ego aside. Um, right. But to learn that history and then to see the fury of Mother Nature come in. And, you know, Mother Nature obviously really didn't want a sea in the middle of the desert. Right. Um, with all of the floods, the 500-year floods uh, that happened in the early part of the 20th century. Um, and right. to actually see photos of that devastation, to see archival video, you know, very early film clips, fascinating, yeah. fascinating. And, yeah. you, and you give us this history, and then you give us the show place that it was in the 1960s and then you hit us with yeah but this is what we've got now right so your heart just sinks when you get when you take us to that point because you have right. shown us the beauty and the wonder and the trials and tribulations in making this and in turning the imperial valley into such a vibrant uh, and fertile part of the nation's economy, not just California's, right. but the but the nation's economy. Um, so you you tackle this from every perspective, from the political aspect, from the consumers aspect, from the tourist aspect, uh, from the right. realtor developers a aspect. <laughs> um, you're giving us how impactful this one spot is. On so many different things. And why it's so important now. That Sacramento. The feds. Whomever. They got to wake up and pay attention. Right. Um, right. You know. How, how did you. Did you meet any resistance from people? How did you go about finding. The people. To speak with. That you decided to include. In this documentary. So. Nearly everybody that I interviewed not only was not resistant, but they were very sort of excited to talk about the sea. The sea has kind of been forgotten about, so everybody kind of wanted to get the word out and tell the story because the area has seen such a dramatic drop in tourism in the last, you know, 20 years mm -hmm. or so. So people were very open to talking about it. People were very excited to share their memories about the sea. The way I physically went about getting those interviews was once I sort of got one person, they would refer me to other people, and then that kind of dominoed from there. And I had some fortuitous chance encounters with people that kind of led me in different directions. At one point, I was in a parking lot fixing my camera, and a reporter from the local newspaper happened to bump into me and connected me to one of the other reporters there and they connected me to other people. So it kind of fell into place a little bit. Uh, it seemed like everybody wanted to tell the story. And so the story got told effectively. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how did you go about, cause obviously you were developing this through line as you were going when, yeah. when you're, you had no preconceived notions about what starting point a would be and what uh, the, the final frame would be. So how, when did it start taking shape for you? Did you wait until you had assimilated all of these interviews and footage, or did you start crafting out editing as you went uh, with your editor? And i got to say, Blake Harges, Blake does an amazing job cutting this film. So he, he was fantastic. I mean, uh, i got to give him so much credit for how he put all of these different pieces together, just so talented um, and deserves so much credit for the edit. Thank you, Blake, first of all, for working on this with me, if you ever hear this. But in terms of how we worked on it, what happened was I had accumulated a lot of talking heads footage mm -hmm. uh, up front. So I had interviewed probably seven or eight people. And 
there's not that much literature out there in general about the Salton Sea or the right. early history. It's pretty scant. So what effectively happened was as I was doing these interviews and we were, I would show him the footage, we sort of started to see what the narrative was going to be. Mm-hmm. And we did a rough cut of everything from kind of A to Z, which was linear. We did kind of from 1905 to 2019. And once we kind of had that assembled, Blake worked his magic and started, you know, working the narrative a little bit more in terms of jumping us back and forth from right. the past to the future and then back again and so on and so forth. And then we worked together from there to trim stuff out, make sure that the, the narrative was compelling, that we weren't getting bogged down in anything, um, that we weren't spending too much time on things that really weren't adding much to the story. Um, so it was a bit of a fluid process. It wasn't like we wrote a script out and then tried to cut to a script. It was very much, let's find out what the story is and then build the story from there. Well, and it comes in at a very brisk 82 minutes. Um, yes. Uh, for my money, you could have included more. You could have given me another 15 minutes of this and I would have been just as fascinated. Oh, well, that's good to hear. That's <laughs> That's always a good thing to hear. You know, we w- wanted to leave people wanting more, so so I'm glad to hear that at a well, certain level. Especially when you get to the a plan that actually could solve the problem right now, and that's right. opening up, you know, creating a berm between the Sea of Cortez and just letting the water run right into the Salton Sea. Because for those that don't realize it, the Salton Sea it's below sea level. Everything's yeah. going to run into it. And, you know, right. everyone that knows me knows I can relate to that since my condo is the lowest point in a complex. So whenever there are floods, all the water <laughs> runs into my house. So yeah. I, I understand this this principle of physics and gravity. Um, right. But I would love, love to, for somebody from Sacramento or even the federal government um, to to hear their take on that idea, because that that's it's simple, it's easy, uh, and it can be accomplished pretty quickly. Well, you know the the challenge has been getting momentum behind one particular solution to the problem. Yeah, and for those listening. The issue is there's not much more water running into the Salton Sea. It's drying up very quickly. So they have to figure out how do we get more water into the sea without taking fresh water away from the cities in the area. So, you know, there's been a lot of solutions. That one is a viable one. I, I suspect from what I've heard from the political realm that their challenge is that that canal would have to feed water from Mexico into California and our relations with Mexico are not great right now. So, you know, it's just a, a confluence of things that has kept happening that seem to stall out these restoration and mitigation issues. And that's on top of even just the smaller things that they're trying to do that don't seem to get done on the local level. Mm-hmm. Well, and that I think this this is a microcosmic way of looking at the inaction of politics. And yeah. this is very focused so when people wonder about why things don't get done and why things don't get accomplished, watching this documentary, you very succinctly show us that. Without casting blame, without throwing stones, it's just, look, this is how it is. And this is what this person says, and here is the timeline, and here is what the wa- the Imperial Water District has done. Um, and, you know, you go back to your sixth grade science class and you understand that the water disappears because of evaporation, because there is no water coming from irrigation into the sea. Yeah, um, yeah. And, 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 you know, to your point, what you said, there, there is no smoking gun here. There right. is no main perpetrator of what's going on. It is just a very complex environmental and political situation. And so there was, you know, a, we really wanted to show this in a light where we're giving you the full picture 
we have to have a perspective on it, but we mm-hmm. don't also want to create something that is so skewed that um, we're trying to push a perspective on somebody else. You know, we wanted to make sure that it was presented in a fair way and, and told the story from multiple angles. And you do that very succinctly. And um, you also have a great comparison in there to what's being done in the Middle East uh, with the Red Sea and the Dead Sea. Um, yeah. with a similar principle. And that, of course, if that works, that could be an exemplar here in California uh, and say, hey, Mr. Politician, hey, Sacramento, look, look, it really can work. Um, right. So there are all these scenarios, but you never bog us down. Nobody bogs us down with technical mumbo-jumbo. Um, the science is there. It's basic science in this case. Um, right. Very basic. As I said, this goes back, the science here goes back to your sixth grade science class. Uh, it, <laughs> right, it, exactly. It's water evaporation. And the only way, without somebody draining water into it, the only other way it's going to get in there is when it rains. And how often does it rain in the desert? Right. Um, to, to fill up a 350-mile lake or sea? Uh, not sufficiently, but it's, and, and, and one of the things to also think about is just, you know, again, there's a lack of awareness. People are aware of the Salton Sea. You had heard about it. You had maybe been out there, but it's kind of fallen off the radar. And there have been films and some documentary work that's been done about it. But right now is a critical timeline for the sea because it's losing so much water so quickly. So the environmental impacts that were are, we were already starting to see maybe from 2014 to 2017, mm-hmm. they're going to become much more rapid in effect. Right. The shorelines are going to dry up much, much more quickly. And, um, you know, it's, it's getting hotter. You know, why that's happening, I'm not going to discuss, but it's getting a little bit hotter yes. everywhere. And that doesn't help the situation either. So... Um, so it's just we wanted to bring awareness to the subject and hopefully, you know, a broader audience can now understand what it is on a deeper level, understand the history of the place, uh, but also understand what, what's happening now and what that's doing to the people, not just in the area, but what it could do to people in all Southern California. That's And, and that's just it. And to your point also, um, there have been other, there have been films there have been, that have been set down in that area. I know some directors that have shot films down there. Um, capitalizing on the ruin. They needed yeah. that ruin as part of their uh, the setting for their film. But there have been some documentaries, and uh, the big thing that comes out of a lot of them is toxicity, and it's horrible, and oh my God, everything's being poisoned. Well, here again is where your sixth grade science comes into play, which is explained in the film, it's not that anything is being poisoned. It's that as the water diminishes, the salinity increases. So right. then the fish can't sustain in the heavier salination. Um, and when the fish die, then the birds, they, they can't li- exist with no fish to eat or other phytoplankton and algae that may exist in a, in a scenario such as that. So it's a whole big snowball effect um, that happens. And, and, and you... that's, the, that's the mythology that kind of, you know, lives around the sea. There's all this talk about how it's all poisonous and this, that, and the other. And a lot of that is simply not true, as you're mentioning. And so we wanted to dispel some of the larger myths about the sea, specifically about the water quality. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you see photos online about you see the, the dead fish on the shoreline, but again, that's not like they're being poisoned. It's a combination of high salinity and low oxygen in the water, uh, which is naturally occurring. It's mother so, nature. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the the lake is very shallow. So sometimes there's not a lot of oxygen in the lake and, and unfortunately the fish kind of suffocate, but uh, it's not a poison thing. And um, the other challenge is, you don't see people on the lake because there's no access to it for boats anymore. The shoreline has receded so much. <laughs> any, any boat launch you go to just launches out into sand. Right. So I think that's another thing that people forget is you can't access the water. So that's why there's nobody on the water anymore. 
because and kudos to you that the footage that you have um the magic hour footage of the sun setting over and the occasional bird flying over the very calm calm waters absolutely stunning there is an inherent beauty there um that just one look and you have to appreciate it um and we wanted to very much capture that and like you had mentioned there are a lot of documentaries that are a bit doom and gloom yeah where they only talk about oh it's poisonous and look at these what are perceived to be odd communities around the sea and we just didn't want to do that we didn't want to give that take on it we not only did we feel that had already been done many times but that's just not the interpretation that I had of the people I dealt with and the people at the sea. Mm-hmm. So it's quite beautiful. It's not poisonous. The people that live there are wonderful people. So why don't we tell that story instead? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, accentuate the fairness and the positivity. Um, at, you know, after we went to all the trouble to, act, to build this sea 100, right. 130, 140 years ago, you know, let's preserve it. Let's do what we can. And you very keenly bring in what, what has happened at Owens Lake, um, which is further north. Um, so you let people see in, in a very easy fashion, you know, what is happening, what has happened, what can be done to stop this from happening and to improve everything. And uh, the positivity that you give us in this film, I think, is so important uh, in, in this day and age in particular and with everything that's happening with the environment. But as I said, this is, you show us this microcosm. This is really a microcosm of er- a convergence of everything, of uh, politics, of the environment, of health, uh, the medical community, the science community. And it all rolls into one in this one spot. And you just lay it out so well, Greg. Just so well. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I have to, I have to bring up your beautiful scoring. Stephen oh, Guthine's yeah. beautiful scoring. Oh, my gosh. It is subtle. It's beautiful. There is no doom and gloom. In the orchestration right. or the instrumentation. So I'm curious, uh, particularly with a documentary, score can be even more challenging than with a narrative feature uh, or film. Right. So I'm curious what your thoughts were in working with Steve uh, to for the score. Well, he, along with Blake, are so instrumental in so much of this film as, as collaborators. Um and he is amazingly talented as a composer and musician. And very fortunately, we were of similar mind coming into the scoring process. Uh, he watched the film, and I went to the spotting session, and we initially had a discussion about, you know, what the tone was supposed to be. What is this supposed to feel like? And he, he had initially said, well, what about using kind of a string quartet feel? Um, and going with that, and I sort of immediately agreed and felt that that was what the material was asking for. Mm-hmm. So we had a uh, we spent a day kind of walking through the film, um, sort of seeing okay how how can we score this to drive the momentum of the film to add to the narrative. You know, you always want to do things with motivation, and then he began to work his magic. And just came back with, you know, a home run on all levels, Mm. in my opinion. So, you know, I can't thank him enough. And, you know, just some of the things he did with the opening um, and the way he sort of kept that. He just sort of kept the pacing going with the film, with the score, but also added emotion to it, added subtlety, accentuated in the right spot, uh, and just created a wonderful soundscape. So now... Now that you have this first directorial feature documentary out there getting ready to go into the world digitally tomorrow, 
and, yeah. and hopefully it will be playing at theaters where theaters are actually open, unlike in L.A. Um, <laughs> I always have to get that in there, man. <laughs> well, well, we are in a theater, actually, bizarrely enough. So we have a drive-in screening in Palm Springs uh, on Saturday, this coming Saturday, the 26th, I believe. And it's at the Camelot Theaters uh, in Palm Springs. And it's a tie-in with the Palm Springs uh, Cultural Center. Mm-hmm. So we actually had a drive-in screening about two weeks ago. It sold out. And they asked us to do another one. So that is happening. It's great to be in theaters. Um, if somebody wants to go see it, it is playing there at the Camelot Theaters in Palm Springs on Saturday. We were in more festivals, obviously. But the festival circuit has been very affected. But we, we are still yeah. screening virtually at uh, Newport Beach Film Festival, at the Andocs Film Festival in Palm Springs, and also the uh, ARPA International Film Festival here in L.A. So we're doing those virtual screenings. We're doing the theatrical screening. And then the big digital release is tomorrow on mm-hmm. iTunes and Google Play and all the digital outlets. So now what has what this learning curve been like for you? Uh, because you're no stranger <laughs> to the industry. You've been around for a while in various capacities. Yes. You've produced, you've written, you've worked on Episodic, CSI Miami. Yeah. Um, you've been on, on reality shows. Um, yeah. So what was this learning curve like for you to bring this feature documentary to life? Well, fortunately, you know, I, I wasn't completely green. I have experience on set. I worked in episodic for almost 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, worked in scripted. I worked in reality. Both of those lended experience to the process, but working on a project where you are one member of a large team versus going out and doing it on your own is quite different. And the biggest learning curve for me was I worked predominantly as a writer and producer. So I had some technical experience. I went to film school. I knew how to edit to a certain extent. I knew camera to a certain extent. But along the way, I had to add a ton to my own skill set. So that was the big one was not just the technical side of things, you know, learning how to operate camera and learning how to do those things. But it was also applying the story things I had learned from reality and from scripted to my own project. And you don't have anybody else to lean on with an independent documentary, you you know, it's you and you're making the decisions, you're making the key creative decisions. So it's daunting at first, but uh, you you learn to get more confident in the process and more confident in your decisions as you go on. You know, uh, I've got to ask you, um, what were you, what did you shoot this on? So I shot primarily on on a budget camera, relatively budget camera, a Blackmagic uh, Ursa 4K. Oh, I love uh, Blackmagic. That Magic. camera came out probably five years ago, mm-hmm. and I just I just kept using it, you know, because that's what I knew how to use, and I didn't really have the funding to go get better equipment over the course of the documentary. So uh, it was a great piece of equipment that served me really, really well and was pretty versatile in terms of the documentary process. So very thankful that the technology now allows for people like us to go do that. Uh, Ten years ago, this would not be possible, probably. Mm -hmm. So um, there's been that sort of technical revolution. Um, So, yeah, I used basically two soft boxes I ordered on Amazon for like $200 to light everything. (laughs) And then I just brought my camera and my lenses and a microphone, and and that was that, and I kind of learned on the fly. What lenses were you shooting with? I shot mostly Canon lenses because that's just what I had, uh, mm-hmm. uh, 24 to 70 and a 70 to 200. And those that covers most of the focal length. Yeah. So I kind of took the camera. I had a very minimal kit, and I went out there and just made do with what I had access to. You know, it was very scrappy and run and gun. We, we did not have a huge budget by any means. And that was it. It was my camera, my lenses, two lights. I, and I'm not lying. I had two lights the entire time, two two little soft boxes, and then everything else was either natural light or we shot on um, drones to a certain extent, D- DJI drones, mm-hmm. which were very helpful. Well, uh, some uh, some of the aerial footage is stunning. 
Um, but you get those magic hour shots there over, you know, over the sea. And they are right. breathtaking. Absolutely breathtaking. And you, you, want, you want to see more and you want to see and you think immediately of the contrast to the Technicolor 1960s real estate developer promotional materials. Right. And you want to see that come back to that again. Um, you want to see that vibrancy match that beauty that's, un- that's still there and unfolding. Ah, Greg, this has been <laughs> wonderful talking to you. I love this documentary. Well, thank you for having me. I love this. I sincerely hope you will come back on the show again and that you make us something else that is just as wonderful. Likewise. And, um, again, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to watch it. I always appreciate that. And, um, again, for, for people that want to see it, it will be on iTunes and Google Play tomorrow. So just go on either one of those platforms, search for a miracle in the desert, the rise and fall of the salt and sea. And um, if you happen to want to buy it on DVD, they are, it is on DVD and Blu-ray on Amazon. That has been popular in pre-order. So for those that want a hard copy, Amazon. And um, there it's playing at the drive-in in Palm Springs on Saturday, the 26th at Camelot Theater. So um, if you're interested in the environment, if you're interested in conservation, um, this is really a film for you, I hope. And um, once again, thanks for letting me come on your show and talk about it. I do appreciate it a lot. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Likewise. Thanks so much, Greg. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks again. appreciate it. Bye-bye. And that was Greg Bassenian talking about Miracle in the Desert, the Rise and Fall of the Salton Sea. I really, really encourage you, especially those of you in California, um, to check out this doc because it truly is wonderful. Well, and that, of course, is all the time we have today. I want to thank Janice Rouse for coming on and talking about the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles. Greg Vicenian talking about Miracle in the Desert, the Rise and Fall of the Salton Sea. You can, tomorrow, tomorrow, and if you're in Palm Springs, get there this weekend for a drive-in showing next week. Ah, next week's pretty tasty, because next week we're going to be talking about a documentary on onion rings. Mm-hmm. Onion rings. Pam's in there grinning from ear to ear over that one. And Steve Balderson is going to be joining us to talk about his new book, Filmmaking Confidential. So, uh, Steve is a very, very talented filmmaker, so he's got a lot of a lot of pearls of wisdom in here for all you filmmakers there. So until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 